1 Peter 1.1 Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to the strangers scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. That's the text we've been reading just to identify the audience of the book of 1 Peter. And then 1 Peter 4.12 Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you as though some strange thing happened unto you. So I want to continue messages to the dispersed church. This is part three. God bless you. You can be seated. Amen. Now I was talking to uh, Brother Townsend on the phone today. We're catching up on several care needs and things like that. And he mentioned to me that he had listened to something I said last week and he, he added the book of 1 Peter to his reading this past week and he did his homework and read the first the book of first Peter in addition I'm sure to other Bible reading and I was just curious how many people might have read those five chapters of first Peter in the past week you don't have to stand you don't have to lay on the floor if you didn't just say amen if you did that's great and if you didn't then there's next week and it will not take you long. And you can then you'll when you get to First Peter in your Bible reading, those of you that read your Bibles through, we had 85 people at our bread banquet that we had to, you know, had a problem with and had to change the date. So we have a lot of Bible readers in our church. And even those who don't make it all the way through, read their Bibles. And I love it. I would love you to come to church and say, oh, I read that. Yeah, that, that inside our pastor just gave. I got that in my personal Bible study six weeks ago. I'm not offended by that. I love that. I think that's the way it really should be. So you have a chance to read the book of 1 Peter again. And then I want to go back and I want to just clarify something I intentionally taught on last week. So I guess my comments last Wednesday were the SWAT heard around the world about corporal correction. Not really, but several people have mentioned it to me and said, pray for me, you know, with my children and... So I just wanted to give you just a couple things. And this was in the context of suffering has a purifying effect. And I wanted to give you just a few additional thoughts about this. So the Bible specifically mentions that this rod of correction, a paddle, a switch, something in other than your hand. Uh, there are lots of scriptures, and I won't give you the text, but they're all in your Bible, and I read them last week. He that spareth his rod hates his son. You know, foolishness is bound in the heart of a child, but the rod of correction will drive it far from him. Withhold not correction. Beat him with the rod. He will not die, hopefully. Um, beat him with the rod and you'll deliver his soul from hell. That's pretty strong, Proverbs 23, 14. The rod and reproof, so a combination of verbal correction and corporal physical correction, uh, give wisdom, but a child left to himself, brings his mother shame. So I've thought about this idea through the years, probably too late a little bit, you know, our boys raised our boys on uh, some corporal correction when we thought it was needed, and I probably have done it wrong, might have done it right a few times. But I was thinking about this, you know, the amount of force it takes for your hand to deliver uh, spanking that, that causes pain. You have to use a whole lot more force for your soft tissue on other soft tissue that might be padded, you know, by clothing, by several layers of clothing. If a child is smart and knows that he's going to get a spanking or she is going to get a spanking, probably mostly girls, 
Not that many guys need spankings. But anyway, so I've thought about this through the years, you know. I've taught parenting and marriage seminars here and there. I thought, you know, the Bible is a wise book. And if you think about the wisdom of that, uh, that God gave us some instruction. I don't think this is a doctrine, um, but there's probably some insight there for parents. Actually, got a plastic spoon out of my wife's kitchen drawer today in practice just to see if what I was saying was still true. And I have bruises all on my leg over here. Not really. <laughs> so I just want to encourage you to follow the teaching of the Bible. If you have young children, younger children, uh, and, and do the right thing and spank them appropriately. Uh, I believe that this biblical teaching has been ignored to our own hurt and to the detriment of children we have been entrusted to raise. And while I'm there, I want to say that I believe that spanking should be measured, intentional, while your children are young, not infants, and it should be done with wisdom. It's a wise thing to do. But appropriate corporal discipline, according to the Bible, is an expression of love. And withholding it is an expression that you do not love your children. That's what the Bible says. You can not like it, but that's what the Bible said. It's also a preventative. Remember, the blueness of a wound cleanses away a lot of things in a person. And in my opinion, you know, and I believe there's a principle, then you have to apply that principle that the time to start spanking according to the age of the child, is when defiance is demonstrated. You spank for willful disobedience, not for childish irresponsibility. And not a perfect science, but in my mind, once a child moves into their adolescent years or teenage years, then that begins to change to a different form of correction because now your goal is not to teach them submission and understanding and obedience. Obey instantly. You know, I don't have time to tell them you know, five times not to run out in front of that car. So if you learn to obey immediately, that's a really good thing. And then as they move into their teenage years, I think your goal is different. You're trying to teach them to make decisions on their own and responsibility. And I think that spanking should taper off. But it's individual to parents. The Bible principle is there. And, uh, you know, the option is in the Bible, and this is under the law, if a, if a child was rebellious, disobedient, would not listen and they would, could not be corrected, they were brought to the elders, and they were be, to be stoned to death that rebellion would be put away from Israel. I'm not suggesting that. We're not starting a line at the front of the church tonight. Your child's probably not that bad. Their parents may be that bad, but the children probably are not. So speaking of suffering, <laughs> spanking, delivers a certain amount of suffering. And remember, it's in the context of suffering has a purifying effect according to the Bible. Again, you can argue with the Bible all you want, take it to God and tell Him to rewrite it the way you think it ought to be done, and then you'll see how that goes. But last week I gave four potential reasons why people suffer, and I just want to review them. That, first of all, we suffer because we live in a fallen world. And there's sin in our world and suffering in our world. And it is not all because of bad decisions we make. But the second reason we suffer is because of poor choices and sinful behavior. And I took quite a while last week to go through some scriptural principles about the way of the transgressor is hard and thine own backslidings shall reprove thee. We went through that. And then the third 
aspect of suffering, the reason people suffer, is that suffering has a purifying effect. And that's where I covered that child raising, those child raising principles. And all of us, no matter who we are, the most godly person in this room, we all need purification that comes through the chastening of the Lord. The Bible calls it that, the discipline of the Lord. And the fourth reason I gave last week, and again, I'm not saying this is the only, these are the only four reasons, is that there are times we suffer unjustly as Christians by persecution. And there may be various levels of persecution from ridicule to physically, physical persecution, all the way to martyrdom. And we should not ignore the fact that the Bible tells us about many martyrs throughout the Old Testament and New Testament. And Stephen, the first known martyr in the book of Acts. And, and many people that loved God, served God, were great Christians, laid down their lives for the sake of the gospel. So we should not think it strange concerning our fiery trial, which is to try us. So tonight my goal is to move through the book of 1 Peter and just bring some attention to the passages that speak of suffering of various forms. I'm just going to go through the book as it's laid out and I'll spend a little more time in some areas and other passages that are rich with insight. I may kind of cruise through them a little quicker for the sake of where I want to end tonight. So at the end of my message last week and part of the very first message on suffering was the opening of the book of 1 Peter, which was such a powerful thing. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which has, according to His abundant mercy, has begotten us by a lively hope, a living hope, by the resurrection from the dead by Jesus Christ. And then he said, to an inheritance, incorruptible, undefiled, that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God, through faith, unto salvation, ready to be revealed at the last time. So the Apostle Peter opens this book with a tremendous word of hope, of encouragement, of promise. He wants you to see the end while you're not there yet. He wants you to look at the result of the process that God will take you through to purify you, the suffering that you will go through. And he tells us that we are kept by the power of God, and it is something that's going to happen, ready to be revealed in the last time. So now when you look at the book of 1 Peter as like the Job of the New Testament, as one commentator said, and I mentioned last week, <clears throat> he writes this book, and there's so much about suffering in this book to give us insight and encouragement, not depression, but encouragement. He wants us to know that God will keep you through whatever you go through in your life. We're the children of God and the world is not going to know who we are until the last time. As Colossians said, when Christ is revealed, then we also will be revealed with Him in glory. And then we come to the first passage on suffering in the book. It's verse 6. We're barely into 1 Peter when we read about suffering. Amen. And I learned tonight that Mason, who preached on take two last week, also now has water under his pulpit. <laughs> Mason boy. Here it is, 1 Peter 1, 6. Wherein you greatly rejoice, though now for a season, 
if need be, you are in heaviness through manifold, many kinds of temptations and your trials, that the trial of your faith, being much more precious than of gold that perisheth, though it be tried with fire, might be found into praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. So first he tells us in verse 6 that suffering is for a season. It is not for every day always in your life. Now I know that self-denial, take up your cross daily and follow Jesus, that's what we do. But the Apostle Peter said that there's a season of suffering you're going through. And when you are in a season of suffering, you need to remind yourself that this will not always be. This will not last forever. I will live through this season kept by the power of God to the very end. But that's not the, the life that God has called us to. He's called us to life and that more abundantly. So sees this suffering is for a season. And then he also tells this, us in verse 6 that it is also for a reason. So it's for a season and it is for a reason. He tells us if need be. Now I have really thought about that phrase, if need be. Does that mean if I need it? Probably. I need it for a season, thank God, not every day forever. And then he tells us why are the result of this suffering that it is more precious than gold. Your faith, your salvation is more precious than gold that perishes. Now gold has an enduring uh, nature, right? But it perishes according to the Apostle Peter. But then he says this gold, that's your faith in God, your salvation, that faith, that gold is going to be tried by fire. And this is this whole idea that the apostle is setting up to show us that your faith is precious, more precious than gold. But in order to have your faith purified, it has to go through a process that is like gold that is purified by heat. So you're going to have fiery trial, right? That's our text in 1 Peter 4. That is to try you and you shouldn't be caught off guard by it. And then he tells us that the end result of this is our salvation. Amen. Then the next passage on suffering is in chapter 2, verse 12. Chapter 2, verse 12. He tells us having your, the King James word is conversation, your behavior or your conduct, honest among the Gentiles. He said, I want you to live in this world with all these sinful people. Remember, these are messages to the dispersed church. They're sprinkled like salt throughout a pagan world. They're not living in Jerusalem like the holy city. They're living everywhere where there are pagan people around them. So he said, I want you to understand that you're living among these Gentiles, but you have to live a different life. Your, your behavior should be honest among them. And he said, even though you live a godly life, they're going to speak against you. This is in the verse, 1 Peter 2.12 that whereas they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works, which they shall behold, they'll watch, glorify God in the day of visitation. Now what is he saying? Right now, 
They're, they're speaking evil against you. Your godly life may convict them or condemn them. So they're trying to balance their guilt with blame. They're trying to blame you, find fault with you, pick you apart. Any little thing you do, they're going to point it out because you're supposed to be a Christian and you're supposed to be living for God, but you're going through a, a fiery trial. You're going through suffering. You've had loss in your life. Things aren't perfect for you. And these ungodly people, these Gentiles they're called here, are looking at your life and they're making false accusations against you. And all the while, you're doing right, living for God, living an honest a life of honest conduct and behavior. But he said in the end, they're going to see you come through that and in the day when God comes back, they're going to see who you really are. Now, this verse has instruction and promise all bundled up in it. And, and if you go back a few verses, and this was not on the screens, but the Apostle Peter tells them that they're a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar or a set-apart people, God's special people, and he said, the reason I did that is that you would show forth the praises of him who's called you out of darkness and into marvelous light. So in the context of what he said in 1 Peter 2, 9, when he gets to verse 12, he, he's talking about this life that we're supposed to live. That we live in a world of spiritual darkness, of moral darkness, but we are the light of the world, right? Jesus told us that. He's the light of the world. We're the light of the world like he was. And we're to live a separate life, a life that is distinctive from the world so that we show forth light in the darkness of our world. He's called us into marvelous light. That's referring to the life that we live. It's a light of light, godliness, holy living, separated from the world and unto God. So people in the world often see right as wrong. They slander Christians. This kind of slander was pretty common then just as it is common now among people who do not understand the people of God. It's like the bad guys accuse the good guys of doing wrong. Sounds like politics in 2022, doesn't it? They're accusing you of what they're doing. And that's what Peter is saying to them. They're living in darkness, but they're accusing you of living in darkness. But he just said, you keep holding on, keep doing the right thing. I know you're suffering, but in the end, there's going to be a great reverse. There's going to be a turnaround. They're going to realize that you are a godly person and you are, belong to Jesus Christ and you're going to live forever with him because you stayed the course. You did not give up. Now, the Apostle Peter is kind of echoing the words of Jesus in, from the Sermon on the Mount when he talks about good works and he speaks of giving God the glory they would see your good works and give God the glory so Peter argues for a steady course of righteousness even though pagan people don't believe that you're really living a life that is the right life he's also telling us that we should submit to God in the middle of seasons of suffering and then 1 Peter 2.20 the next example or scripture of suffering, that we should do right even while we're being done wrong. First Peter 2.20 For what glory is it if when you be buffeted for your faults you shall take it patiently? 
But if you do well, if you do the right thing and suffer for it, you take it patiently, this is acceptable with God. So let me just quickly summarize this verse. If you're doing wrong and you're suffering, that doesn't help you. It doesn't bring glory to God. You deserve it. You rob a bank and go to jail. Don't blame the devil. You're getting what you deserve, right? Don't you wish people who were thieves actually were punished for their theft and uh, we'd have a lot better world to live in. But anyway. But he said when you, when you do the right thing and you suffer for doing right, you're approved of God and it has the effect that suffering was really intended to have. Peter goes on and talks about servants obeying their masters. This context is, being is about being mistreated by, by slave owners. For us, we would say by an employer who's not treating you right. But in their culture, it was slave owners, masters who were treating them wrong and being cruel to them. And they were just supposed to endure it and make sure that they lived a godly life and did not allow that bad environment to cause them to sin and retaliation that God would be pleased with them if they would just hold on and do the right thing. This was unjust suffering. Not suffering for mistakes they made, not suffering for bad behavior or sin, but suffering for being a Christian. And then the Apostle Peter tells us that Jesus set an example for us. 1 Peter 2.21 For even hereunto were you called because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow in his steps. In, in Jerusalem, they will take you down the, the Via Della Rosa, the way of suffering. This is the way we believe that Jesus was led from Pilate's court all the way to, Gal, to Golgotha, to Calvary, where he's crucified. So the apostle Peter is envisioning the, the path, whether it's that path or not, but the path of suffering that Jesus walked down and that we are to follow in his steps. And Jesus himself told us that we are to take up our cross daily and follow him. Where, where did he go with his cross? He went, to, he went to Golgotha. He went to a place of death, physical death for our sins. And the apostle Peter said that Jesus left us an example of suffering that we should follow in his steps. I, I think it was the first Wednesday you know, where Jesus said, the servant is not better than his Lord. If he has been hated, we could be hated. If he has suffered, we will suffer. And we should not feel that we're above it, and we should not think it is strange when it happens to us. Because Jesus, Peter said, he did no sin. There was no guile found in his mouth. He was reviled, accused, but he did not revile again. He, was suf he suffered, but he did not threaten. And he committed himself to the one who judges righteously. In other words, he understood that, as the Bible said, vengeance is mine, saith the Lord, I will repay. You turn it over to the Lord, and you let God avenge you of your enemies, and don't take vengeance into your own hands. Now, if you remember... There have been several cycles of a movement that is the what would Jesus do movement. You know what I'm talking about. Through the years there have been bracelets, you know, WWJD, what would Jesus do? And it all goes back to a, a Christian, a classic 
Christian book that was written by Charles M. Sheldon from this passage, and the book is entitled, In His Steps. That book has sold over 50 million copies since it was published in 1896. 1896. And, and it's a fictional book about a scriptural principle that a pastor talks to his church members. And, and this is a quote from the book. I want volunteers from First Church who will pledge themselves earnestly and honestly for an entire year not to do anything without first asking the question, what would Jesus do? That challenge is still pretty good today, isn't it? Before you say that, do that, whatever, right? What would Jesus do in this circumstances? Now immediately some of you are saying he would braid a whip and cleanse the temple. That's what Jesus would do. He did. You probably are not righteous enough to judge by the law, but he could. So that's a good challenge today. Jesus did no sin, no deceit found in his mouth. He was abused. He didn't retaliate, as I mentioned, turned judgment over to Almighty God. First Peter 3 kind of repeats an earlier theme. And First Peter 3.13, I'll, I'll just read through this passage because the Apostle Peter goes back around to this theme over and over. And who is he that will harm you if you be followers of him, which is good? So most of the time, he says, if you do what's right, nobody's going to take you to court. Nobody's going to give you a spanking. Nobody's going to throw you in jail. This is be speaking in the context of authority, right? Not just bad people persecuting good people. But then he said, but and if, if by chance you suffer for righteousness' sake, you're doing the right thing, living for God, and somebody persecutes you or treats you wrong while you're doing right, he said, happy are you. Now, that doesn't sound like a time to get happy. And be not afraid of their terror, neither be troubled, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. Now, we've used this next verse about soul winning for years and the Apostle Peter writes that you should know how to answer people who mistreat you when you have not done anything wrong. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. Having a good conscience that whereas they speak evil of you as of evildoers, they think you're the bad guys, remember? they may be ashamed that falsely accuse your good behavior, conversation in Christ. For it is better if the will of God be so. Now this is an interesting phrase. He said it's better if God allows it, if God wills it, that you suffer for well-doing than for evil-doing. I want to say like, duh, of course. But remember he makes that argument earlier. If you're buffeted for your own faults, if you get in a lot of trouble because you did dumb things, bad things, you suffer because of your own poor choices and sinful decisions, that's one of those four reasons we covered last week and I reviewed them tonight. If you do that, that's, that's not any good for anybody. But it is better if the will of God be so that you suffer for well-doing than for evil-doing. <clears throat> 
For Christ also hath once suffered for sins. Notice how in this book, he's giving instructions to people and he points back to Jesus. Right? He gave us an example. He suffered in our place. He suffered for our sins. The just for the unjust. That he might bring us to God being put to death in the flesh but quickened by the Spirit. There's a kind of an inferred idea here that I didn't even think about till I just read that. I didn't think of it when I was studying. That if the death of Jesus Christ at the hands of sinners, unjust people, brought us to God, what do you think our suffering with a good attitude could do to people to draw them to the Lord? When they stoned Stephen, they said his face was like the face of an angel. And he said, Lord, lay not this sin to their charge. When he could have rebuked him in the name of the Lord, instead he begged for mercy for the people who were taking his life. Pretty amazing attitude. 1 Peter 4. 4 4.1 For as much then as Christ hath suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves likewise or in the same way. Okay, guys, brace yourself. Get ready for this. Okay, arm yourselves likewise with the same attitude, the same mind. Okay? For he that has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Interesting phrase. Probably not forever ceased from sin, but the end result is salvation and conquering sin once and for all. In eternity, at death, at the rapture of the church. And then verse 2. That he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh to the lusts of men, but to the will of God. He's giving some practical instruction about Christian living. For the time past of our life suffices to have wrought the will of the Gentiles. We live like those people around us. When we walked in lasciviousness, lust, excess of wine, revelings, banquetings, abominable idolatries, to sum it up, we live like the devil. The Apostle Peter is writing this letter to Christians dispersed all over the world. And he's saying, before Christ, you live just like them. And then he said, verse 4, wherein they think it strange. Remember, he told us to think it not strange that you go through trials. But he said, they look at you and they think you are so strange. Now, I know what it says. They think it's strange. They cannot figure you out. They think it's strange that you run not with them. Now that's a good phrase for parents. There's some people you should not run with, right? They, they don't understand that you run not with them. I'm going to have to stop right here. There's places you don't go with them. There's things you don't do with them. He said we don't run with them to the same excess of riot. He said they, don't, they think it's strange and they speak evil of you. Why don't you go with us? Why don't you come with us? Read the writings of Proverbs when he said to his son, if your friends entice you and say, why don't you come with us? We're going to rob. We're going to kill. We're going to do all these bad things. He said, you don't go with them, son. The apostle Peter is telling us the same thing. They, they speak evil of you. But then look at verse 5. He said, these people who shall give an account to him that is ready to judge the quick and dead, one of the, these days, they're going to face God in judgment and they will give an answer for how they lived and how they spoke of you as a child of God. So 
they think it's strange that they'll face God for their ridicule of you. So just like Jesus, why don't you turn over vengeance to the Lord? Verse 12, 1 Peter 4, 12. And this is kind of that text of tonight and I don't think it's necessarily the heart of the book but it's certainly a key verse. Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you as though some strange thing happened unto you. So now we're going to read on in this passage. But rejoice. Really? When you're in a fiery trial, get on social media, complain, whine, get on the phone, whine. The Bible says to rejoice. And your attitude should be in as much as you are partakers of Christ's suffering. Remember at least twice he's pointed out to the suffering, pointed back to the suffering Jesus went through and how he went through that suffering. That when his glory shall be revealed, you may be glad also with exceeding joy. Remember all the other passages that say, until then you're dead, your life is hid with Christ and God in Colossians. People don't know who you are, but in the end they're going to see who you are. They're going to be sorry for what they said about you and thought about you. You're the people of God. When we see Him, we'll be like Him. We'll see Him as He is. We're going to be revealed as the sons and daughters of God. There's a day coming, and this whole book opens, that you're kept by the power of God for that day. So no matter what you go through, hold on, hang in there, don't give up, don't think it's weird or strange. This is how it goes. Amen. Verse 14, 1 Peter 4, 14. If you be reproached for the name of Christ, happy are you. Here he's telling us to be happy again. For the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. On their part, he, Jesus, is evil spoken of. But on your part, he is glorified. Isn't this an amazing book with tremendous insight? Now in this verse... He tells us your faith is like gold tried in the fire, right? And I referred to this more in the altar last week. But I wanted to quickly go through a few verses that give this comparison of trials to this purification process for gold and silver. So I'll try to give you the references. I'm going somewhere. I want to watch my time. Uh, Psalm 66.10 For thou, O God, hath proved us, you have tried us, as silver is tried. Proverbs 17.3 The fining pot is for silver and the furnace for gold, but the Lord tries the hearts. In the same way that gold and silver are purified, God purifies us. Isaiah 1.25 The Lord said of Israel, I will turn my hand on thee, I will purely purge away thy dross and take away thy tin. I wanted to read the New Living Translation of that the Lord said, I will raise my fist against you. I will melt you down and skim off your slag, all the impurities, the dross, and I will remove all your impurities. So the Lord is saying to his people, I'm not trying to destroy you. I'm trying to get the sin out of you. Isaiah 48.10 Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tested you in the furnace of affliction. Doesn't sound exciting, does it? Jeremiah 9 and 7. 
Therefore, thus saith the Lord of hosts, Behold, I will melt them. My goodness. That doesn't sound like an experience I really want to have. The disobedient house of Israel, Judah, the Lord said, I will melt them and try them. Zechariah 13.9, the Lord said, I will bring the third part of them through the fire and I will refine them as silver is refined and will try them as gold is tried. They shall call on my name. I will hear them and I will say, it is my people and they shall say, the Lord is my God. Malachi gives us the same theme. He's speaking of the coming of John the Baptist and he's like a refiner's fire and fuller's soap. He shall sit as a refiner and purifier of silver and he shall purify the sons of Levi and purge them as gold and silver that they may offer unto the Lord an offering of righteousness. And then 1 Peter 1 and 7, you know, the beginning of this book, your faith is more precious than gold though it is tried with fire. So there's a lot about this, right? This fire and trials and all of the things that we go through and the Apostle Paul wrote in several passages about bearing in his body the marks of the Lord Jesus Christ and fill up the things that are lacking in the suffering in Christ and that I want to know him in the fellowship of his suffering. Paul wrote about identifying and being a part of the suffering of Jesus Christ. There are several passages that I don't have time to go into that is very intriguing to me. 1 Peter 4.13 But rejoice... Inasmuch as you are partakers of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory shall be revealed, you may be glad also with exceeding joy. Peter goes back to this theme, verses 15 and 16. Let none of you suffer as a murderer. Again, a recurring theme. Don't suffer because you're doing sinful things. Don't suffer as a murderer or a thief, an evildoer, or as a busybody in other men's matters. It's hard to put that in the same sentence with a murderer, right? A busybody and a murderer are both bad people. Yet if any man suffer as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God on his behalf. Verse 19. Wherefore let them that suffer according to the will of God commit the keeping of their souls to him in well-doing as under a faithful, unto a faithful creator. I told you I would just go through some of these passages quickly to show you this theme of suffering in the book of 1 Peter. And the grand finale of 1 Peter 1, don't get too excited, but the end of the book, 1 Peter 5, 8. Be sober, be watchful, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion walketh about, seeking whom he may devour. He's looking for a vulnerable person. The lions in the plains of Africa, they're not looking for the strongest Cape Buffalo they can find. They're looking for weak, wounded, young, stray, separated from the herd, the loner. They're looking for the isolated animal. The devil is like that too. But then he says in verse 9, whom resist steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same afflictions... The stuff you're going through all in the world over here in this Asia Minor. Remember the book is especially the churches in Asia Minor. He said things that you're going through there don't feel like you're the only one that's going through this. 
He said the same afflictions are accomplished in your brethren that are in the world. It doesn't mean worldly people. All over the world Christians are suffering, he says. So don't feel like God is picking on you or that you need to move away from Bithynia because times are tough there. Verse 10. But the God of all grace who hath called us unto His eternal glory by Christ Jesus after that you have suffered for a while, not forever, but for a while, make you perfect, establish, strengthen, settle you. The Apostle Peter knows a little bit about what it is like for the devil to come after him. And Jesus said to him, Simon, Simon, Satan, Simon, Simon, Satan has desired you to sift you like wheat. He wants to destroy you. And here's the apostle Peter. And remember Jesus said, when you're converted, strengthen the brethren. And here's the apostle Peter, converted, living for God, an established man of God, and he's strengthening the church. And that's what he writes to them. I want you to be strengthened established and settled. That's how he is closing this book. That no defect would remain in you. He would perfect you that this fiery trial would purge out all the, the junk in your life that you'd be like Jesus. And that and nothing will shake you. I want him to strengthen you. I want him to establish you like on a really good foundation that no matter what happens between now and the end of your life or the coming of the Lord, that nothing will ever cause you to fall. Amen. Amen. He writes that in the second book. And that you will overcome every... He'll strengthen it. You can overcome every adverse force. Pretty powerful stuff of the book of 1 Peter. And if anyone could write with authority on the suffering, the theme of suffering, it was Peter. He saw the suffering of Christ. He wrote about it in 1 Peter 5. For me, I'm going to go past that verse. 1 Peter 5 and 1. He was told by Jesus that he would die a martyr's death. That when he was old, they would take him where he didn't want to go and they would kill him. John 21, 19 said it was signifying by what death he would glorify God. The apostle Peter knew that he would suffer in his death. He caught a glimpse of the glory of God on the mountain of transfiguration when he saw the face of Jesus glow. And Moses and Elijah appear with him, the law and the prophets on the mountain. And now Jesus' grace and Moses and Elijah disappear. And it's, only, it's Jesus only. He saw all of that. He knew what he was writing about. He lived through this. What an amazing, amazing book. But I want to tell you a story. In January of 1988, our family uh, moved from Jackson, Mississippi to St. Louis, Missouri. Went to Bible College in Jackson. I served on that church staff for about 10 years. And uh, Ryan and Joel were born in Jackson. And so we lived there and we moved to St. Louis to work in the youth division. Ryan was five. Joel was almost three according to my little calculations. My wife knows exactly. She was expecting Justin who was due in April of 1998. So in March of that year, March of 1988, Brother Jerry Jones, who's my new boss, you know, was scheduled to preach at the National Music Ministry Conference in Jackson, Mississippi, held at the Municipal Auditorium downtown. If you've been there, raise your hand, more people than you think. Hold them up real high, right? Lots of people been there. See, it's about 3,000 people. Monday night's not that big of a crowd, but it's Monday night, it's music conference. It's a big deal. And he said, you know, I would like for you to go back with me 
I just stole you from them. I don't want anybody to beat me up. If you'll go, maybe it will help. So that was kind of the funny context. So we're in church Monday night, music, you know, municipal auditorium. And uh, I'm sitting backstage, actually. There was these big curtains, big city auditorium. And sitting between curtains, I can see Brother Jones, like, you know, the side of him preaching. And on that Monday night, he preached an amazing message like he always does. But his text was taken from 1 Peter 1 and 6. Wherein you greatly rejoice, though now for a season, if need be, you are in heaviness, in manifold temptations. His title was, If Need Be. So I'm sitting backstage, I'm watching him, and as he preached, I was crying so hard. Like the Holy Ghost was on me, and I thought, oh my goodness, what is God saying to me through this sermon? If need be, he's talking about trials. Everybody loves to hear uh, three weeks on suffering, right? There's trials and suffering, and if need be, you go through bad, tough times. And I am, I am just having, I mean, God is speaking to me. So I didn't really know what that meant at that time, but I was thinking back, you know, and like what in the world is going on? And we'd been in Jackson for a long time. We loved the church, college, Brother Kraft, the people. They were like our family to us. And it took me a long time, several couple of weeks, almost three weeks to make up my mind to, to go. And many supernatural things happened to let us know that it was time to leave. And this was the will of God. And we're expecting a baby. Our boys are little. We don't want to move. We don't want to uproot our kids. And earlier, earlier in that season of transition... It was in the late fall, uh, maybe the early winter of 1987. So we'd already made the decision to leave. We didn't leave till January. Brother Billy Cole came and preached at our church. It was either a Bible conference, I think, a missions conference. And if you know about Billy Cole, know Billy Cole, raise your hand. So Billy Cole is a very large man. He's a very powerful man. Very sensitive to the Holy Ghost. God used him in miraculous ways. In Thailand, across North America, huge crusades in Ethiopia and around the world. 100,000 people receiving the Holy Ghost in crusades in Ethiopia. And Billy Cole is an amazing man. And he'd come to teach in the Bible college when I was a student. And, you know, he didn't know me really well, but he knew us. And, and I, he knew about us, us leaving. And he's in the middle of preaching, all right? So he's preaching this sermon and he stops in the middle of his sermon. We're sitting right over here in the church. And he said, Brother and Sister John's, he says something to us, and then he says this, there will be many tears, but the Lord will see you through. Well, that's exactly what you want to hear right before you're going to move. Right? I'm like, thanks a lot, Lord, for letting us know. It's hard enough to leave people we love. We love what we're doing. I'm running a Bible college. I'm 30 years old. You know, I'm, I'm in the middle of what I would love to do with my life at that time. And, you know, this is an amazing place to be. And now where there's going to be many tears. So we interpreted that, you know, the sadness of leaving. And you know how you do. You're trying to figure out what God is really saying. So then fast forward to March. I'm back in Jackson. And Brother Jones is preaching, if need be. And I have this frame of reference, many tears the Lord will bring you through. We had tears and moving, but there weren't that many tears, you know. There was there, plenty enough, but it didn't feel like that was what God was saying. 
But I knew that God was preparing us when I got back home. I, I told my wife about this, Brother Jones's sermon. Said, I don't know if I've ever experienced this, anything like this in, our li- in my life where I felt like a message was so directly to me and God was preparing me. So then on April 7, 1988, our third son, youngest son, Justin, is born. And we're so excited, you know, Ryan and Joel's little brothers finally arrived. And when we move in this transition, you know, expecting a baby. And, and, uh, but we're in St. Louis and we're renting a house there. Couldn't sell our house in Jackson. There were tears probably about that and trying to f- survive that financially. But we did somehow. And we're excited. But in about 12 hours after Justin was born, we hear these codes being called. And they come to our room and they tell us that our little boy has got something wrong. My wife is at a cesarean section. She's not going to be able to leave Christian Northwest Hospital. They transferred Justin to Children's Hospital, connected to Barnes, you know, Barnes Hospital there, famous hospital. It's a long, amazing story. You've heard parts of it through the years. He's transferred there, and uh, they start doing tests, and they determine that he has what is called aortic valve stenosis. It's a narrowing of the aortic valve. His, I didn't learn until he was an adult, was bicuspid, two flaps, instead of tricuspid, three, which a normal aortic valve has. They tried a catheterization process. It failed. They had to do thoracic surgery to try to tie off his left femoral artery that he lost on day two of being born. On day three, he had aortic valve surgery, open this little three-day-old baby's chest, and they go in, and they, you know, he told me it was like dot to dot. I could see these little perforations, and I... I cut it back. He didn't tell me bicuspid, though. Cut him back and opened that valve because blood was backing up into his lungs and couldn't get through that little opening. Stenosis means narrowing, like the straight gate that Jesus talks about. The Greek word is like the same idea of stenosis, a skinny gate. So this little skinny hole. And so I remember like on day two after they did this thoracic surgery, you know, my sister, brother-in-law were there. I remember being in this waiting room and going in a little bathroom there. And I, I just lost it. I was so stressed out, sleep deprived, you know, don't know if my baby is going to live or not. My wife's at another hospital and they're like thinking, oh God, you know, any tears. But the Lord will see you through, right? So it's a long story, right? It's still a story uh, today. But Justin survived that. He was on digoxin and few things just for six months and he did really really good and he's like the rowdy risk-taking snowboarding kid right growing up but 34 years later it's still a story of his perseverance and that's just a story but but it's a life from the outside if you looked at our family from the outside go wow isn't this great they're being promoted and they're going to go work in the youth division and isn't this amazing but from the inside the Lord had prepared us to purify us, to work in us, to do something in us that obviously we needed. Because Peter said, if need be. And Brother Jones preached, if need be. When Justin got out of the hospital, the first place I preached was a little town outside of Winnipeg, Manitoba, Canada. It was in late April. There was snow piled this high. They were real excited because they saw a cardinal while I was there that weekend. 
And I preached a youth revival, or youth rally rather, Sheaves for Christ, like Move the Mission, Sheaves for Christ Youth Rally in St. Owens, which is a tiny little village outside of, of uh, Beaujolais. I looked it up today to make sure that I got those little towns right. And it was the beginning, they, they were forming a district and this is a big deal for them. And, and I went and preached, they really loved my southern accent, which I had at that time still, you know, thought that was so funny. And I preached, but at the end of the service, and I've talked about this here and there along the way, I was praying with people. Wow, something was happening in me that I had never experienced in my entire life. I felt a connection and a compassion that I had never, ever felt as I prayed with people in the altar that night. And while I was praying... Like, when, what is this? I felt like the Lord spoke to me this verse, 2 Corinthians 12, 9. And the apostle Paul wrote, and he said unto me, my grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. And Paul then says, most gladly therefore, will I rather glory in my infirmities, in my suffering, that the power of Christ may rest upon me. I thought, oh wow, God, you've done something in me so you can do something through me. And I just want to tell you tonight to think it not strange. I'm sticking with the good old King James. Think it not strange that you may be going through or have been or will go through a fiery trial, which is to test you as if some strange thing has happened to you. God will keep you through it if you will stay the course. As long as you won't quit, defect and get out. There may be many tears, but the Lord will see you through. Would you stand right now? Why don't you lift your hands to the Lord and thank Him for the strength of His Word. Thank you, Lord. Praise God. Hallelujah. One more scripture. In the middle of Job's affliction. Job 23.8 on the screens. Job said, Behold, I go forward and he is not there. And backward, but I cannot perceive him. On the left hand where he doth work, but I cannot behold him. He hides himself on the right hand. I can't see him. Job said, I've lost track of God. I can't find him. Listen to his words. I can't perceive him. I go forward. I go back. I go right. I go left. He uses words of human perception. He's not there. I can't perceive him. I can't behold him. I can't see him. He uses four words that we would use to humanly to be able to comprehend something. But while Job does not seem to be able to find God, Job is fully aware that God exists. And Job is fully aware that God has never lost track of him. 
And Job says this in, in verse 10. But he knoweth the way that I take. It doesn't matter if I can always figure him out or figure out what he's doing or find him or feel him or see him or behold him. As long as he knows the way that I take. And when he hath tried me, Job said, I shall come forth as gold. That's all we need to know. Amen. Thank God. If you're able to come to the altar, why don't you just gather as a church family? Would you always remember to leave room in the aisles, move close and let other people come, especially on Sundays, but let's come. If need be. Wherever you are in this journey of life, I want to assure you that the Lord knows exactly where you are. He's never lost track of you. None of us can claim to be perfect in the process. That's why there is a process. It is a purifying process. It is to make us more like Him. It is to make us fit for a holy city where the streets are paved with gold.